Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Hello, and welcome to this Federalist Society virtual event. My name is Sam Fenler, and I'm an Assistant Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. Today, we're excited to host Back to the Future. Biden administration seeks return to restrictive standards for businesses and independent contractors. Our speakers today are Evan Armstrong and Maury Baskin. Evan is a member of the Government Affairs Team of the Retail Industry Leaders Association. There, he leads advocacy efforts related to workforce and employment issues before Congress and federal agencies. Maury is a shareholder at Littler Mendelssohn PC. His practice focuses on national labor policy and challenging excessive government regulation on behalf of small and large businesses. If you'd like to learn more about our speakers, you can find their full bios at our website, fedsoc.org. After our experts give their opening remarks, we will turn to you, the audience, for questions. If you have a question, please enter it into the Q&A function at the bottom of your Zoom window, and we will do our best to answer as many questions as we can. Finally, I'll note that as always, all expressions of opinion today are those of our experts, not the Federalist Society. With that, Maury, thank you for joining us, and I'll turn it over to you. Okay, thanks, Sam, and welcome, everyone. And we have an exciting topic for today, and certainly one where there's a whole lot going on. We're going to talk about the Department of Labor's, uh, primarily the, the Department of Labor's proposed new independent contractor rule on which the comments uh, have only recently closed, so we were timing it waiting for that to happen and explain how we got here and uh, and where we're going, what the politics of it are. And, um, and that's generally what will take up our first half and maybe more. But then uh, closely related to that, the National Labor Relations Board is expected to decide the Atlanta Opera case, which she is also changing, threatening to change the independent contractor standard. Uh, Evan and I were talking, almost expected to see it come out right before our program because they're issuing a bunch of decisions from the National Labor Relations Board this week as member ring uh, his last day as I believe uh, Friday tomorrow. So we may see it tomorrow. Anyway, we know what's what it's going to say pretty much. So we about independent contractors. So we can talk about that too. And while we're at it, the National Labor Relations Board has just proposed a new joint employer rule, which the Department of Labor has also talked about. And we'll talk about those briefly also. That's in the proposed rule stage. Again, the comments have just closed. So it's timely. And there's so much confusion between the independent contractor issue and the joint employer issue. So uh, we want to explain that. In fact, I think it's useful to just start with what are we talking, which rules are we talking about here? Uh, because the Department of Labor's independent contractor rule, that's really for the Fair Labor Standards Act only, uh, minimum wage and overtime. Uh, and 50,000 comments just on that issue were filed uh, by here in December. And it's different from the common law 10-factor test, which Congress requires the National Labor Relations Board to apply. It's also different from the IRS 20-factor test. <laughs> and then it's different from the so-called ABC test, which is the three-part test that's used in a number of states now. And it really started uh, in California, unless that proposition 
and uh, succeeds in defeating that test there. And on top of everything else, it is different from the joint employer issue, which uh, to keep it simplest, the joint employer is trying to decide who is the employer versus the independent contractor rule is deciding who is the employee or who is an employee as opposed to an independent contractor. So we'll try to navigate through this uh, thicket while generally focusing, uh, at least at the outset, on the uh, Department of Labor's proposed independent contractor rule. So how did we get here? Well, it all starts in 1938, but since we have to get this done in about five minutes uh, by way of introduction, we're not going to walk through all the things that have happened since 1938. Suffice it to say that for years and years, the Department of Labor had a fact sheet, fact sheet number 13, if you care, in which they laid out six factors uh, that uh, dealt with so-called economic realities and were then interpreted by the courts, uh, federal courts all over the country and interpreted differently. Every court seemed to have a different standard. In fact, the same court would have different standards from case to case. And sometimes it's six factors, sometimes it's five, sometimes it's 10. It's just uh, it's just been a total uh, morass, very confusing for employers. And uh, even though there was some commonality in the factors, particularly over control of the work, opportunities for profit and loss, those seem to be the main factors in these cases, but there were others as well, integral part of the business, uh, investments, skill and initiative, how permanent. Uh, but over the years, the situation was just getting worse and worse. And the original six-factor test was devised well before there were such industries as franchising or the gig economy. And these tests were made at a different time. And so, uh, in response to the massive confusion that was out there, uh, the Trump folks uh, in the Department of Labor uh, thought they could give some better guidance. And so they created a rule that uh, was a result of really exhaustive research um, and that showed into the cases that had been decided over decades. And they showed uh, that there were two factors that really do predominate in these court rulings, no matter how many factors they talked about. Uh, if there was uh, control uh, exercised by the uh, supposed employer and the workers, and if there was opportunity uh, or no opportunity for profit and loss, then if those things, two things came together, it was pretty much a done deal one way or the other, that it was independent contractor or an employee. Uh, and so the Trump rule said we should recognize those are core factors, but we'll consider them all uh, and the totality of the circumstances. And the basic goal in the end is to determine the economic realities. That's what the Trump rule said. Now, the other side uh, uh, and the, let's just say that the progressive side of the of the equation, they said that's changing the standard and uh, it's not correct and it shouldn't be allowed to continue. And so the Biden administration, when they came in, felt strongly uh, that it should be withdrawn. And they, uh, in fact, froze it almost immediately. I should add that the the Trump rule was finalized, not finalized until January 7th of 2021 day after uh, the day you've been hearing a lot more about over the last uh, year or so. Uh, but on January 7th, they issued the final rule. It was not supposed to go into effect until March 8th of 2021. Well, the Biden people, as soon as they came in, they froze all the rules that had been proposed that uh, were whether they were purportedly final or not. Uh, and they delayed the effective date of the Trump rule 
Uh, they did this without a proper notice and comment. They, uh, uh, a lawsuit was filed by the Coalition for Workforce Innovation, CWI, which uh, Evan is a prominent leader, and uh, also Associated Builders and Contractors and uh, later added uh, the Financial Services Institute, challenging the delay. Uh, but then they went ahead. Uh, they, there was no injunction at immediately, and they, they withdrew uh, the Trump rule. On First, they delayed it from March 8th until May, uh, May 7th. And then literally the day before it was supposed to go into effect, they withdrew the rule. Well, the complaint took a while, but a federal judge ruled at the beginning of this year, well, March 14th of this year, 2022, the federal judge in Texas issued an injunction nationwide uh, saying that the withdrawal of the Trump rule by the Biden administration violated the Administrative Procedure Act. Um, and the main thing he identified, she identified was the failure to consider reasonable alternatives, though there were other potential issues uh, raised in the complaint. So she declared that the Trump rule, in fact, went into effect on March 8th, 2021. And the Trump rule is still in effect today. But the Department of Labor appealed and then announced it would revisit the rule. And that resulted in a stay of the appeal. So the appeal has been stayed. The Trump rule is still in effect, but the Department of Labor has now issued, and this came out on October 13th here, 2022, uh, they issued a proposed rule. Comments were filed uh, by December 13th, and it was uh, basically, uh, you know, like I said, 50,000 comments. So what? where do we stand with this proposed uh, rule? And uh, as, as we've already seen from one of the, the questions uh, being asked, uh, you know, it's a potential disaster for a number of industries, because rather than returning to the previous uh, tests that were in place, the factors in fact sheet number 13 of the pre-Trump era, uh, the proposed rule changed the test in subtle ways and frankly, not so subtle ways uh, to tilt it more towards finding employees. Uh, and the, the many industries have said in their comments that this, if this goes into final effect, it, it threatens their entire business models. The franchising industry is very concerned. The technology industries, construction, and the independent contractors themselves. Uh, many, many comments have been filed, and as well as studies that have shown that most independent contractors like being independent. It's not some exploited group. They want the independence. They don't want to be employees and freelancers in particular uh, that have been well recognized. Uh, they want to maintain that status. And that clearly is going to be made more difficult uh, by the uh, proposed rule. We don't have time to go into all the details of the, of the rule changes. I'll just give uh, a few uh, examples of, of some of the changes, just for example, first of all, they have eliminated this concept that control and opportunity for profit or loss are core factors, uh, whatever that means. You know, they they misinterpret it, I would submit what's meant what the Trump rule meant by core factors. Uh, they keep saying that the, the Trump rule is saying they're only going to be considered. That was never uh, what the rule said. And it, it was clear that it was going to consider the totality of uh, circumstances. But uh, regardless, they're saying it's no longer a core factor uh, for control or um, opportunity for profit and loss. But on top of that, 
they're saying the control factor is going to be diluted because they're going to consider reserved control. So it's not any longer actual control, but this new concept, relatively new, of reserved control. And they're going to ex uh, expand the definition of control to include enforcement of government safety regulations, which over many years had been felt that that's not really fair to blame the employer, the, the so-called so uh, employer for that. Um, because the government requires everybody to obey these same regulations, you know, various safety types. And so that shouldn't have much weight as part of control. The new rule, the new proposed rule says, oh, yes, it should. And, you know, how much uh, remains to be seen. They modified the opportunity for profit and loss to make it more dependent on managerial skill, implying that to be an independent contractor, you have to have a staff, you have to market your business, you have to manage, you have to have someone to manage, which really kind of eliminates the concept of a freelancer or uh, an owner operator in the construction industry if, if it's carried to its conclusion. And, you know, some of the verbiage, they go kind of both ways. And we're just trying to give a, just a quick summary here of the, uh, these are the points that have caused people concern. Now, this is not a final rule. It's uh, proposed. So maybe they'll take these concerns into account and, um, and make it less uh, threatening in the final rule but nobody's really counting on that. Uh, a couple other examples uh, before I turn things over to Evan to talk about the, uh, the politics of all this um, is uh, making the worker investment a separate factor from opportunity for profit and loss. Um, minimizing what this does, it minimizes the investment in equipment or vehicles, saying there's a distinction between those kind of things and so-called capital investment. Again, they want to, they're saying that to be an independent contractor, you have to actually run a business with staff and capital <laughs> and investment of, of a type. And, and then they want to compare it to the uh, supposed employer, which is always going to be an unfair comparison uh, for an owner operator or freelancer. Their investment is going to be, while it's, it may be significant for them, it'll never compare to the investment by the uh, purported employer. Uh, the, the degree of permanence factor. That, that's always been in part of the, the tests. They want to require proof that the temporary, even where it's temporary, that it results from the worker's own initiative uh, and, and not the decision of the putative employer. It wasn't a layoff. It wasn't seasonal. It was, you have to prove that it was the worker's idea to move on, uh, which again is a tough thing to, to meet. Uh, and then what's integral to the business? Uh, they're expanding the focus on literally any important functions of a worker uh, rather than whether they're worked integrated into a unit of production, which is what that factor originally meant years ago. So it's um, uh, challenging and, and many people think this is an attempt to include the, the B factor from the ABC test uh, from California, incorporate that into the uh, federal uh, standard, which has never been there before. And lastly, uh, skill and initiative, uh, that would be limited, uh, limited to where the skills are used in uh, what so-called business-like initiatives, such as marketing. They talk about marketing. That word must, if you do a word search, must be hundred times that they want, uh, you know, to be an independent contractor, you have to do a lot of marketing and have a staff and have, and have that, those management skills, um, which uh, many independent contractors simply do not have. So uh, we should, let's turn to what's, what's next, what's going to happen with this. They've issued the proposed rule, all these comments, they 
actually are supposed to read them. <laughs> and that, that takes time. Uh, they've done some other rulemakings. They've uh, generally taken about six months, some longer, some shorter. Uh, so let's say three to six months. I think it's more like six months to a year uh, before they issue it. But uh, then again, Kevin will talk to us about what might come out of what happened Congress that might affect that too. Uh, then the question is, uh, they go to, we have this case pending. It's sitting there on appeal. They will no doubt move to dismiss the case as moot at that point. And then there's some legal uh, jujitsu that will happen. Uh, either it will be um, uh, continued, we will be seeking to continue it in the appeals court, or it could be remanded to the district court to examine this revised rule. Uh, but all options are open uh, until we see the final rule, uh, no telling what the coalition uh, that exists uh, will decide to do. So meanwhile, the Trump rule stays in effect. And with that, let me turn it over to Evan, who's been waiting patiently to tell us uh, what's going to happen uh, politically. Evan? No, it's a, it, it's a long journey that we've been on to get here. So uh, I think you uh, put it as succinctly as you possibly can while, while not uh, avoiding any details. I, I think the folks need to know that uh, Maury is here to bring the stake uh, and the substance, and, and I'm gonna bring a little sizzle and talk some politics uh, on what all this is gonna be now and, and into the future when we get into the next Congress. You know, I think one just response to, you know, what Maury laid out in terms of these factors and how the department is going to view them, I think the moral of the story is they want it to be intentionally vague. Uh, I think that gives them more discretion to use any one factor in a way that they want to get to the decision that they want, which is more often than not going to find that an individual is classified as an employee under the test. So the vagueness of these factors, the 160 plus pages in the proposed rule, I think was giving them as much leeway uh, as they can. Uh, and I think that's what, um, folks need to be counseled on while they're, you know, making plans internally. It's certainly something that we've discussed uh, with our retail executives who are are tracking this issue. So, um, you know, when the Trump rule came out, CWI, which is the Coalition for Workforce Innovation, we were very supportive of just the clarity that it provided, uh, trying to synthesize the rules a little bit more clearly and just give a little bit more rules of the road uh, for both individuals who, who want to be independent contractors, independent workers, and organizations that utilize those services. And we all know it happens a million times a day, every day throughout the economy. Um, and that was really the story that CWI tried to lay out um, over and over again in, in advocacy to the Department of Labor. Um, but knowing that they are going to do what they set out to do, uh, which is to create the standard that is easier for them to apply uh, and find individuals as employees. Uh, much of the comments that CWI submitted uh, really laid the groundwork uh, potentially for a challenge in the future. As, as Maury mentioned, uh, CWI was the lead plaintiff against the Department of Labor when, uh, against the Biden administration uh, when they rescinded the rules. So uh, I think a lot of what our commentary provided was, again, that basis uh, for finding that this decision, again, was arbitrary and capricious uh, and something that we'll look at. Um, in the interim here, um, they're going to be reviewing the, the comments, as Maury mentioned. It'll take them a while, or it should. Uh, hopefully, they do read all 50,000 comments carefully. Um, that will take them into the spring or summer to get to a final rule, just in terms of that's typically how 
long it takes for a, an agency to get a major rulemaking out could be even longer. So uh, we have a little bit of a, a respite here uh, before more action is taken. And, and again, the Trump rule has been in place. It will continue to be in place. And I think one of the arguments that the Department of Labor received was, you know, they've been utilizing it effectively to find misclassification in many cases. I think they'll continue to do that, which will further uh, deteriorate their basis for creating a new standard here, as which, which is what they're doing. So um, more to come on that. I think politically, you're going to see a very unified Republican conference in the House on this issue. They're unified in not a lot of ways. Uh, there's a lot of infighting right now as they get themselves organized going into next Congress. But over and over and over again, you hear uh, a lot of um, uh, opposition to what the Department of Labor and the administration are doing towards independent contractors. So I think the issues that can really animate the Republican conference in the House where they will have a slim majority, I think those are the ones that are going to rise to potential uh, full action by the House. And so I think that uh, the House Education and Workforce Committee, whether it's chaired by the current ranking member, Virginia Fox, uh, or uh, new chair, uh, Tim Wahlberg, next year, this issue will be a priority. Uh, so I imagine uh, multiple hearings in the first half of next year on independent contractor issues. I think the committee will develop uh, specific legislation uh, to codify a standard that makes sense. Um, so we don't have the ping pong uh, effect uh, between administrations uh, that we commonly have on labor issues, whether it's at DOL or the NLRB. Uh, I also think they may pursue something called the Congressional Review Act, which will allow Congress to rescind uh, a, a final rule by an administration. The trick there is that uh, you obviously need uh, a Senate to uh, agree with the House action here. Democrats do control the Senate uh, with the 51-49 majority, but the independent contractor issue um, does not unify uh, the Democrats uh, as much as it does Republicans because there are uh, several Democrats who support the independent contractor model, who support the franchising model, and understand that the impact of this rule in the way the Department of Labor may apply it uh, could be pretty damaging uh, to their constituents, to business owners, to individuals who they're hearing from uh, on a database on a day-to-day -day basis that you know are worried about what the department is doing. So I think the politics of this are very interesting. Um, again, I think Republicans will put votes up that may put some Democrats in a tough position on the issue. And um, you only need a simple majority uh, in the Senate to pass a Congressional Review Act. And that would go to the president's desk and, and, and make him make a decision about whether he wants to veto it uh, or pass it. Uh, I think it's likely that the president would veto uh, legislation to that would rescind a rule that his administration passed. But again, I think it puts the, the conversation out there and I think it puts people um, in a difficult position, perhaps within their conference, uh, namely Democrats to either say they support independent work and the positive impact it has on the economy or sort of toe the, uh, the party line on, on, on this issue. So um, that's kind of the next steps uh, in terms of what we're going to see uh, legislatively. Uh, most of the action is going to be in the House because the Republicans do control the majority there next Congress. Uh, but I do think there's opportunities in the Senate uh, to make hay on this issue. And um, you know, I, I'm certain that CWI uh, and RELA and many organizations uh, that are impacted by this will uh, continue to call on Congress to, to act um, in opposition to what the Department of Labor is doing. 
Great, Evan, thanks. Uh, we have gotten some questions already and uh, good questions I can uh, briefly answer. And uh, maybe Evan, if you see anything different, uh, feel free to chime in. Uh, one was uh, whether uh, there's going to, we expect a rush of uh, for exemptions before the final DOL rule is put forward. And uh, they were reading through the comments. That's where the request for exemptions would happen. Um, that's where the rush would be. Although uh, in California, they did it legislatively. And so, you know, following up on what you just said, Evan, it's certainly possible somebody could try to get a carve out through Congress and that Biden might sign for his favorite industry or two. Um, and that really was a kind of unseemly rush uh, for carve-outs uh, there in California and uh, also added to the whole arbitrariness of the whole thing. And so it, it is not a good way to uh, legislate. But um, in the comments themselves, I know one exemption that was pretty prominent was uh, that people were asking for was a small business exemption. In fact, even the uh, Office of Advocacy of the Small Business Administration, which is part of the administration, um, they had came out on the side of the uh, business community there saying, you know, this is a, has a whole lot of impact that's not properly uh, acknowledged by the department and, and it should be, you know, rethought at a minimum. Uh, and uh, meanwhile, the department uh, has said uh, pretty much they're not, they, they mentioned that as a consideration, an alternative they considered and, and voted no. So actually it wasn't a vote. They just did not do it in their proposal. So, um, and I think individual industries have made statements along those lines. And uh, Evan, have you seen anything on the uh, carve out front uh, in technology or the, the other members of the your coalition. I know there was conversations with, before we saw the proposed rule um, that folks thought that it may be focused on certain industries that I think to quote the Department of Labor had a history of misclassification. I think they name checked construction uh, as being one area. Um, and so I think there was ideas of whether certain industries were not going to be the prime focus here. Um, I think now we know what the proposed rule is. Uh, we know how broad it can be utilized. And I don't know that if I was a an industry that utilizes independent contractors that I would feel safe as it stands now. But a question I'll throw back to you, Maury, if they create certain exemptions or they explicitly state um, to focus on one industry over another, does that add to an argument that it is arbitrary and capricious that it's not uh, a dutifully passed rule under the APA? You know, let's just say it's a double-edged sword at the least. Uh, they could, you know, one could say that shows they thought through alternatives are reasonable, but also that they're acting, you know, just, uh, well, arbitrarily. Uh, so I, I think I'm not expecting, frankly, that they will do the right thing or <laughs> right or wrong, depending on which way you think it is. Anything that narrows it, I think, would be uh, the right thing considering how, how broad it is. And that raises a question, the uh, next question that we've been asked, which is, um, is this a candidate for challenge under the major questions doctrine? And those of you, I'm sure all of you as good federalists uh, know that that doctrine is potentially very important because the Supreme Court is saying, well, separation of powers in the constitution means something and it's wrong for Congress to just turn loose these administrative agencies without explicit uh, guidance. What's that's different here or more of a challenge to make that argument is that the, the case law that I skipped over, you know, I said I wasn't going to go through everything since 1938. There's a lot of cases in there, including Supreme Court cases um, that indicate um, deference to um, 
the department, but also uh, certain factors that uh, need to be considered. So it's not a new development, uh, which the the other cases where the major questions doctrine has been applied has generally been. But uh, I believe it's always now any administrative action should be considered with an eye to the major questions doctrine. And since I'm handling the lawsuit, I can tell you that that will be considered as a possible argument. Uh, and, um, and particularly the broader they make this rule, the more they are subject and open to that type of challenge. Uh, and the judge is down there in a circuit, uh, Fifth Circuit, which you know is uh, has expressed interest and support for the major questions doctrine. Uh, I'll mention another question here. Uh, how can deliberate ambiguity in the tests for independence be consistent with the rule of law? Well, darn good question. Um, and uh, I think they are going to have to answer for that. That was the whole reason for the Trump rule, which was that, that was so confusing under the original ambiguous standards that and the courts made it all worse that this would help streamline if they would just leave it in place and follow it and see how it works out um the, all the the scare talk about how it uh, the trump rule just you know makes everybody an independent contractor is certainly not true there are actually a couple of courts that have applied the uh, trump rule and it doesn't come out that way necessarily so uh, it, but it does it did and still does it's still in effect it um and if you get an investigation by the way if you're a company that has one going on uh, you want to be sure the investigator realizes he's still bound or she is still bound by the Trump rule. So that's uh, the best answer is you're right, but it's up to the courts to uh, decide that. Evan? And more and, and more just to, I, because this is something that um, CWI comments, uh, one of the arguments to undercut uh, their the rule uh, making here is the affected stakeholders have to know whether they're in compliance um, is a key component here. And I think the ambiguity and the vagueness of these factors and how they can be applied would indicate it may be difficult. You may think that you're in compliance, but it, it, it's a very difficult proposition. Yeah, extremely frustrating, especially to advise people about this, because if only this were the only test, there are different laws. In fact, the next question relates to that. Uh, someone has said, you know, I get the income tax issues, but why? What are the remedies and what is the threat? Well, here under the Fair Labor Standards Act, the threat is quite severe because for minimum wages and overtime, particularly the overtime, if you don't pay those because you classified someone as independent contractors, uh, you're open to class actions and they have been filed for years over and over, costing potentially millions of dollars to companies who thought their people were independent contractors who were not entitled to overtime. Uh, and even minimum wage. Um, but uh, they found out the hard way that because of how these factors were interpreted, which were so ambiguous, they had no real clear notice, uh, they owed a lot of money. And so this, this is why the Department of Labor's ruling on this is extremely important from a remedy standpoint. One other related argument is how important is it really because the courts don't necessarily pay attention to what the Department of Labor is saying. Um, they actually do give deference to the department's rules, some more than others, depending on how you know valid they think the rule is. So it is, well, for one thing, it was an opportunity 
when the Trump rule went into effect to make a change for the better. And now that opportunity will be lost, but also it's going to be made worse because they did not simply go back to pre-Trump standards. And that's something else they have to answer for. You know, when an agency changes position, uh, they uh, have to give a reasonable explanation and they have to acknowledge that they've made a change. So here they certainly acknowledge that they made a change from the Trump rule, but they have not really acknowledged how different their standard is from the previous Obama and, and earlier administrations. So they've got something to answer for there. Also, uh, they mentioned the Congressional Review Act, uh, which you brought up, Evan. So I'll let you answer this question. Oh, I'm sorry. Did you not see it? It's uh, would the vote need to be scheduled by the Senate leader? And does that mean it can't happen? So good question. Um, so I'm a House guy and I will get in trouble talking too much about Senate process. Um, uh, Senator Byrd would roll around in his grave. Uh, but. Uh, my impression is it's what's called a privileged motion, which it can be brought to the floor without the you know consent of uh, party leadership. So the most recent example um, we have here is Senator Braun and several others led a Congressional Review Act motion to rescind the OSHA uh, vaccine mandate. Now, they actually did pull a couple Democrats on their side and had 51 votes and it did pass the Senate. Interestingly, before it got to the president's or before it went to the House, uh, it was the Supreme Court came in and, and basically made everything moot by saying the mandate was unlawful. But that is the most recent example of uh, Senator Braun, Republican in the minority, bringing a CRA up uh, to the floor and getting a couple Democrats on board. Uh, to my earlier comments, I think the independent contractor issue is is eligible to get that kind of wedge issue on a few Democrats. Um, it may be worth noting that there are several Democrats up in swing states in 2024, uh, including Kirsten Cinema, who's typically a, a bit of a maverick uh, from the Democratic side. You have Joe Manchin, uh, who has already expressed uh, concern about an issue we're going to talk about on the joint employer side. He is very um, interested to protect construction and the franchise model. So I do think, to my point, there there is going to be an opportunity potentially on this issue to get some Senate action. And I would uh, point to uh, Senator Braun's office as being a potential lead on that as well with a few others uh, like Senator Tim Scott. So uh, more to come, but uh, they certainly can press for action. And speaking of voters uh, in Congress changing sides, um, someone has asked, although uh, we shouldn't even entertain this since it's, they're asking about the PRO Act <laughs> and uh, not our uh, subject of today, but it's a subject everybody needs to be concerned about. So, um, you know, pointing out that the five Republicans actually voted to pass the PRO Act. And I, I, I for one, don't believe we should. Uh, no one is sitting around just resting on their laurels and assuming the PRO Act, you know, will just go nowhere. And it's vital that it not pass the House because if it passes that balance, it's more likely to pass the Senate, although a couple of vote switchers may prevent that. Um, it's uh, And the reason actually the PRO Act does apply here or has relevance is because in the PRO Act is a nationwide ABC test, similar to, you know, California. Uh, test, although it's only for the uh, uh, National Labor Relations Act uh, currently, and we're going about to talk about that. Um, but still, and so there is a relevance to independent contractor. It's a legitimate question. And uh, Evan, what's the answer? Is Pro Act uh, going to suddenly rear up again in that uh, controlled house? I've spent far too much 
too much of my uh, life the last two years talking about the product, but uh, it is something we have to continually be vigilant about. Uh, I do not expect the product to ever come to the floor uh, in a house uh, controlled by the Republicans. I think at least three of the Republicans that voted in favor of the PRO Act last this this Congress uh, are no longer there and will not be there next Congress. Uh, one of them was Don Young, who passed away uh, a few months ago um, from Alaska. Um, so I don't I don't worry about the House uh, moving on the PRO Act. They're more likely to vote on something called the Employee Rights Act, which is the exact opposite uh, in form and function to that. So um, I think rest rest easy there. I think on the Senate side, from the ProX standpoint, um, that's a little bit more of a risk. Although I am skeptical that Mr. Schumer would bring up a very controversial bill again going into a 24 cycle when many of his uh, uh, colleagues are up for re-election in tough states. So um, I think we'll continue to monitor it, but I, I I'm I'm dubious that it was it will get a vote uh, in the next Congress. Okay, I think the last question we can take in this segment, although we're going to go into other aspects, uh, which uh, keep keep sending them in, but has to do with, uh, you know, in tort, uh, the the ground rules there look to state precedent. Why are we even looking at uh, federal standards? And one thing is worth bringing up about this is that the Fair Labor Standards Act, uh, the courts have held going back to 1938, practically, and certainly 1948, that um, uh, the, that the standard is different from the common law because the Fair Labor Standards Act uses this language about suffering or permitting people to work as, and that's been viewed as setting a different test. So for this limited purpose, now one could ask, what's the logic behind having state governments at all? That this is the Federalist Society, so we support having state governments, and you know the state laws are different uh, in some respects, but. It's it is certainly confusing, as you saw or heard from the beginning, you know, it's, uh, keeping all these uh, different things straight. And it's not just the state governments, but it's so many different standards at the federal level. What's the logic for that? Except, as I'm about to explain, the, the National Labor Relations Board is governed by the common law because the Congress in the Taft-Hartley Act overturned their efforts to uh, put through something like um, this economic uh, realities test that is now being applied. And they said, no, none of this economic realities use uh, the common law standard. And everybody knows what that is. Well, actually, it wasn't quite clear, but they um, came up with this uh, 10-factor test for the common law. Uh, and so, you know, uh, the National Labor Relations Board has a different standard that it must meet from what the uh, Department of Labor is doing under the Fair Labor Standards Act. So the National Labor Relations Board is about to issue a new case on this independent contractor uh, test and what factors do they apply. And the courts have already held, uh, particularly in the FedEx uh, case that we worked on uh, that, you know, they are bound by the common law. They can't go their own way. And the courts owe no deference to the National Labor Relations Board when it adopts a test that is inconsistent with the common law. That didn't stop uh, the Obama board from uh, trying to impose a new test that was broader. uh, And the D.C. Circuit slapped them down, said you are bound by this, and it's twice actually, uh, you're bound by the uh, uh, common law standard. And and that's where things have stood, but uh, they are now proposing, uh, well, what, what caused the new 
uh, situation is that the Trump NLRB issued on its own a rule, which is kind of rare for that agency. They usually just decide case by case. They issued a rule in which they wanted to clarify the joint employer status requires a direct evidence of control over essential working conditions uh, by both the employers who are at issue. And um, and so uh, indirect control uh, could also be uh, considered. So they imposed the joint employer uh, rule is a proposed rule. The independent contractor change that's about to happen is in a case. The case is Atlanta Opera. Uh, and it has really very little to do with the gig economy or franchising. It's about makeup artists in an opera company. But, but they have picked this case and declared that they want to use it to create um, a, a new standard that harkens back to uh, the FedEx standard for independent contractor status, overturns this uh, super shuttle case, which the key issue which the board is hinging it on, some of the factors about control and opportunity, they're similar to what the Department of Labor has talked about and that we've spent most of the time talking about. But uh, in the NLRB cases, a lot is hinging on the uh, opportunity, entrepreneurial opportunity, and that if employees, uh, so-called employees have that entrepreneurial opportunity, then they're really independent contractors provided that the control factors are present and, and other tests about permanence and uh, the other seven or eight tests that they follow. Uh, and so a lot hinges on that entrepreneurial opportunity because the freelancers, the Uber drivers of the world, uh, you know, that that's, that's an important factor uh, for them. And so Everybody's waiting to see what they do in this Atlanta opera case, which literally could come out tomorrow, even tonight, uh, because people are expecting it to happen before the, the Republican board member leaves the board, which is tomorrow at close of business, I believe, unless it's midnight. And so uh, we are expecting that. And uh, then the question is, if they do it uh, based on a case like this. Normally, that's challenged in the courts of appeals. There's question because this is happening in the context of an election. Will it be possible to immediately challenge it? Or will it have to wait a year or two before a different case is brought in the unfair labor practice uh, climate uh, or, or environment? So um, there's a lot of confusion. That's, that part is guaranteed. <laughs> when they issue this new decision, it'll be a lot of confusion about how it applies because they're going to be trying to make general principles out of a case that is really, uh, I don't want to say unique, but unusual. So it's its really a poor vehicle. And part of me still says, I think, gee, maybe they'll actually recognize this is a horrible case to make uh, broad principles law out of. Uh, but we'll just have to see. Uh, everyone thinks pretty much that they're going to, in some way, return to the pre-Trump standard for independent contractors except that that was in total flux prior to Trump because the courts were disagreeing even then with what the Obama administration was, was doing. So that's what's happening with the uh, board and the independent contractor. And as I mentioned, the board is separately issuing a its own proposed rule to deal with the joint employer status. Uh, and the Department of Labor, ironically, they got that rule vacated uh, in the, during the Trump administration. 
And the Department of Labor has not yet proposed another joint employer rule. They're just continuing to enforce it pretty much the way it was being enforced uh, prior to the Trump administration. So, uh, again, I, I don't know if this clears things up or makes it even more confused. Well, it definitely makes it more confusing. No question about that. But uh, let's see what you think uh, politically there, Evan. What, uh, what do you think is going to happen with these uh, the board? We will we talk about the PRO Act. Uh, yeah. so. We live in a world of confusion. Um, that's always fun. Um, yeah, I think politically it's, it's a similar message uh, on the uh, independent contractor front from what the Department of Labor is doing. Um, there is quite a bit of opposition to this vague, indirect joint employer standard that the board is moving back towards. Um, and I think there was a, a really good indication on the prospects of congressional action via the Congressional Review Act uh, that happened uh, last week, which was a bicameral, bipartisan letter of disapproval to the board about the rule. And that is important because it had 51 senators uh, sign it. And so they have a proxy vote there to do a Congressional Review Act to rescind uh, this joint employer rulemaking by the National Labor Relations Board. The senators, uh, the Democratic senators who supported the letter are Manchin and Angus King. Um, so I think that is a really good indication on where this issue might head in the next Congress. Um, again, um, those senators deeply care about certain industries, namely franchising, which has done a great job of uh, lobbying and advocating against these vague joint employer standards uh, for the last several years. And I think um, have bore some fruit out uh, with support on their position. So I think much action will happen there, similar, similar as it has happened on the independent contractor side. You know, beyond, you know, where Congress is, you know, I think, um, Organizations like CWI and RELA and many others will continue to press on uh, oversight hearings on uh, certainly on the House side where, uh, again, either Virginia Fox or Tim Wahlberg will chair uh, the Education and Workforce Committee in the House and will have the ability uh, to call uh, witnesses in to talk about these issues, to talk about some overreach, uh, bad policy making by uh, these agencies and continue to sort of beat the drum on this. And to Maury's point, um, you know, I think a challenge on the Atlanta Opera Fund um, will we'll sort of we'll have to determine what that will look like. Right. If it's applied in a different case uh, that makes sense for some amicus to be filed from CWI or others, I think that we'll have to make that decision. But um, we'll say there's a lot of uh, what do you say? A lot of known unknowns and a lot of known knowns and plenty of unknown unknowns out there. But, you know, we'll be we'll be ready to commentate on it. Right. <laughs> Um, okay, uh, you know, we can take a few more questions at this point. Um, I, I do think uh, that the joint employer rule that the board is proposing is particularly dangerous to a lot of industries because and it's similar too in that they purport to be going back to the Obama standard, but they've actually gone beyond it because even uh, the Obama standards of the NLRB, which dealt with like the Browning and Ferris case that some of you may recall, they said that indirect uh, and potential authority could be a factor. And the, in fact, the Trump rule says that right in there, it can be a factor indirect, but it's not the sole reason. You can't be found to be a joint employer based solely uh, on uh, the indirect or reserved or potential control. But this, uh, the proposed uh, rule, which would rescind uh, what the Trump board did, they are saying 
and this is different from what the Obama uh, board had said, that merely the sole thing you've got is uh, reserved indirect potential control between employers uh, who are both uh, have employees working, you know, in a, a work site or uh, other pretty much anyone that you have a contract with. If you're running a business, a vendor, a contractor, uh, a technology person, a freelancer, um, you've got this potential for joint employer based on a contract or just understandings that are just open <laughs> to interpretation that combined with similar to the independent contractor rule, this notion that safety conditions where there is uh, control exercised in the vague sense that, it, you know, as a, a standard part of doing business, you're welcoming a vendor into your plant. You've got to make sure that they are subject to the same safety rules as everybody else or on a construction job site or in technology uh, situations or franchising and franchising needs to protect the brands according to franchising law so they're being put into this impossible situation the franchisors or the prime contractors or the other examples i just gave um it's, it's it really is an impossible situation if the government has regulations and all you're doing is saying, well, everybody in our building uh, needs to obey these regulations or everyone at this construction site. That is not the kind of control that was traditionally recognized. And there are many cases, especially on the NLRB side, that says that is inconsistent with the common law test. So I think that puts the uh, board, if, that, if they stick to that, in what's in the proposal and they stick to that in the final rule they're they're really asking for trouble i think with the courts of course who knows what court who the judges are going to be by the time they uh, get there and that makes a huge difference uh, but it's still and particularly because it may take longer to get there if you know this atlanta opera case is the vehicle uh great concerns about Will it be in a posture that can be immediately appealed or will it have to go through more unfair labor practice complaints and work their way back up to the board and more confusion and meanwhile, more judicial appointments from the Biden administration? So that's a, uh, a concern as well. Um, so uh, those are uh, uh, our thoughts on both sides of this, the board, the, the NLRB, the Department of Labor, and even to a limited extent, the states. Hope we've answered your questions. If there's any, uh, looks like you all have uh, run out of steam question-wise, so we've uh, answered them. And uh, I think we can uh, let you enjoy the rest of your day. Unless, Evan, you've got some closing thoughts. Well, Lori, I had one question. Um, you know, you talk about the DC circuit, I think in both the joint employer and independent contractor instances, they've expressed um, concern with the approach. You know, you, you talked about in the FedEx case uh, with the Obama administration, you have, uh, I, I know, I believe the DC circuit expressed concern about an indirect vague standard in joint employer. So, you know, how, what, what does that do to the current administration's ability to win in the DC circuit when they have some bad precedent already on the books? Right. Now, of course, the D.C. Circuit has moved a little to the left since those uh, decisions were issued, but they've also shown that they generally you know, apply their own precedents, uh, particularly in that FedEx case. They were very firm about uh, saying, you know, when you come back to us with exactly the same issue, we're going to tell you exactly the same thing we said before. Uh, and you're right about the uh, the Browning Ferris. Uh, one of the fallout cases from Browning Ferris 
when uh, the union tries to uh, enforce it is the board, it, it recognized the ability to use the indirect test for uh, for joint employer, but said it can only be for essential uh, working conditions, not just anything, not because otherwise it's impossible. Everyone is a joint employer with everyone else, you know, unless you limit it in some way. And so they instructed, they, they denied enforcement. They instructed the board to do a better job of articulating what are the essential working conditions and how does the control factor relate to them? So what did the board do? They came back and basically the Biden board has come back and said, well, it's pretty much everything is an essential working condition. So that's their answer. Uh, they make such a long list that it becomes uh, meaningless, one could argue. And I think they're going to have uh, trouble with that because they, you know, are clearly acting in defiance of what the uh, appeals court told them. And and any board uh, case challenge can be filed in the D.C. Circuit. Although another interesting court to all this is there is pending right now a case over where appeals from NLRB rules are supposed to be filed. Are they filed directly in the D.C. Circuit or are they filed in the district court? Now we're really getting lawyerly technical. Uh, but since there are lawyers among you, uh, ironically, this case has been pending. That issue has been pending in front of the D.C. Circuit on another board rule uh, dealing with uh, uh, elections. And they've been stuck on that case. Could come out at any time, but they've spent more than a year thinking about it, primarily over that very question. So we're hoping they figure it out before these rules go final and we actually want to challenge them. It'd be nice to know which court we're supposed to go to. So anyway, that's a little interesting trivia fact. Well, Maury, we got two questions. I think they can be answered pretty quickly. I'll take the first. Um, the, it's pretty pro forma for uh, agencies to extend comment periods. Uh, typically, they may initiate a 30-day and a lot of times we'll give a 15, 30-day extension if enough people ask. So I think, you know, the, the regulated community and the folks here in DC know that uh, when the initial comment period is released, uh, there's an opportunity to immediately send a letter saying, well, you want, if you want a thorough comment, if you want uh, good data and evidence, you need to give us more time. So it's, it's a generally a pro forma exercise in most cases uh, with most agencies. But I, I no more. If you had more to add on that, but I know that uh, somebody asked uh, Ethan asked the name of the case you referenced about uh, jurisdiction of uh, NLRB cases. Yeah, when he said what is the name of this case, I was trying to remember what was I talking about at four twenty three p.m. But uh, I think you're right, uh, and I believe if, if we're both on con right connection here, it's the case AFL CIO versus the National Labor Relations Board because the AFL CIO is the one that challenged some parts of the election rules, which. Judge, as I recall, it was now Justice Jackson actually issued uh, an opinion that upheld most of the rules, but struck down some, and and they uh, and then upheld some. So both sides kind of appealed from that, and the board itself raised the question in that case. Um, hey, this uh, challenge was filed improperly because they filed in the district court and they should have gone directly to the D.C. Circuit, which other cases that had been challenged of NORB rules, like some old people may remember the American Hospital Association case uh, or even younger people like me uh, remember that case. And um, that was done in the district court. Nobody made a peep about that. But now it's a, a new theory and uh, it apparently is uh, causing 
angst in the D.C. Circuit. So we're, we're waiting to see. Anyway, it's AFL-CIO versus the National Labor Relations Board. Okay. Well, great, great questions. And um, I think we've done all we can today to sort this out and uh, more to come on both fronts, that's for sure. So Sam, take us out. Well, gentlemen, on behalf of the Federalist Society, I want to thank you both very much for sharing your time and your expertise with us today. I want to also thank the audience for joining us. We greatly appreciate your participation. Please check out our website, fedsoc.org, or follow us on all major social media platforms at FedSoc to stay up to date with announcements and upcoming webinars. Thank you all once more for joining us, and we are adjourned. Have a great evening. Thank you for listening to this episode of Telefor, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.